0: Hello and welcome back to the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. And I've just gotten back from SASTA Paris and really had time to digest some of the conversations. And what so many of the founders were discussing was ACVs. What's good for each segment? How do I increase them? When does SMB pricing turn into enterprise and mid-level pricing? And so much more. And so today we're answering that question from the minds of David Skok, Jason Lemkin, and the founders of Chargebee and Insight Squared, just to name a few. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. This type of episode, really, the feedback is so helpful for me, and so do ping me on Instagram at hstebbings 1996 with two Bs, and I respond to all messages there directly. But before we dive into the episode today, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Well, Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. Join them and learn more about the true value of social at sproutsocial.com. And speaking about the power and importance of connection, I want to talk about Sapling, the new people operations platform taking the community by storm. Hundreds of companies, including Envision, Cruise, Kayak, and DigitalOcean, are raving about Sapling and its ability to streamline HR, create a red carpet employee experience, and empower people operations teams with the connectivity, data and insights to improve employee happiness, productivity and turnover and best yet, listeners of Sasta Podcast get three months of sapling free whilst this offer lasts. So if you're tired of wasting time managing HR in spreadsheets and repetitive manual workflows or if you're just wishing you had one system to manage your global workforce, head on over to saplinghr.com slash to sign up and see why leading teams are making the switch. That's saplinghr.com forward slash sasta and start empowering your talent to reach their potential through the power of automation connectivity, and talent insights powered through Sapling today. And last but not least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO of Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments, and subscription management platform. Fusebill ignites growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine. Absolutely love that, Tyler, and getting help from peers means help finding success. And you can also find success with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on to find out how you can add benefits like chase pay and more to your payment solution visit wepay.com forward slash harry that's wepay.com forward slash harry but you've heard quite enough from me so now without further ado i'm delighted to dive into this deep dive on all things acv good that's perfect
1: okay i think we're warmed up
0: So first, I want to start on the meta. And if we hear ACV so much, average contract value, just how important is it? And is it the most important metric? Today, we'll hear from David Scott on this one.
2: If you don't mind, I'm going to answer that question by lifting it up a little bit um, first and then coming down to that one. I think the picture I want to play out here is why are metrics so important? What role do they play in an organization? You highlighted the most interesting thing here, which is we are moving to a very data-driven decision-making world. Uh, And I think the reason for this is, was beautifully summed up by Lord Kelvin who made the statement, if you can't measure something, you can't improve it. And one of the ways that I have of really highlighting this to entrepreneurs is the following situation. I've been in a number of board meetings where the company involved has missed the sales number. They, they you know, they, they projected they would hit X in the way of bookings and they, they missed it by a significant amount. The really bad companies, you kind of get that statement for them, well, we missed the, the number. And then you ask them the question, well, why did you miss the number? And the quality of the company, Will be determined by the quality of the answer that you get. So the bad company will kind of shake their heads and say, well, we're not really sure, but we, you know, we we think it might have been some seasonality or it could have been something to do with a political issue that was going on or the economy or something like that. The really good companies will, will jump in and they will be able to break that down and tell you, well, wait a second, when we looked at what was going on, we can tell you that our eastern region performed just as well as they have done in the past, but our western region didn't. And so they missed plans. So then you dive in a second, you say, okay, so what happened there? Well, um, you know, we had three salespeople that we were just hired as new and their productivity didn't ramp according to what we expected it would do. And so let's go and look at, you know, what, what was the cause behind that? And then they will also be able to look at things like did their close rate from opportunities that they had to close deals or their win rate against a competitor, which are all metrics that, and data that you use to analyze what, you know, whether things, they'd be able to tell you whether those stayed the same. So if you knew your opportunity to close rate had stayed the same, then you know that there's nothing you know substantially different if it, if it had gotten worse then you ask the question well why did it get worse was there a new competitor that was had a feature that we didn't have or were we not selling as well against them so you're able to actually figure out how to go and fix that problem and understand why it happened and that's to me is that's sort of the essence of why metrics are such a fundamental part of how you run a business and I think this is a really you know we entered a new era around about the 2008 time frame when finally we we started to get the data that people in sales and marketing wanted to be Able to make data driven decisions. And that was the new era uh, that got ushered in as a result of that. You know, an interesting other thing about metrics here is if you're a CEO and you want to align your company around achieving something, one of the best ways you can do that is to pick a small number of metrics and make them highly visible inside the company and then constantly revisit how you're going to do against those metrics. And what what happens automatically, the moment you put a bunch of uh, those metrics in front of your team without you having to do anything else, they will automatically know that you're going to be looking at those and they will start to improve them. So, it's just a terrific technique for aligning a company around what you want to get done and getting improvement in that area there. And then, you know, the last comment I'd make here is that the metrics are, are, are a hierarchy. So, what do I mean by that? Well, I thought about this and realized that if you actually took the highest of high-level things that people care about in a business, particularly if you're investing in that business, there's only four metrics that you really care about. They are profit, cash, growth and market share. So if you only have those four, why do you need to bother with the other ones? Well, the answer is that if you if your growth rate was lower than you expected it to be, you need to dive deeper, drill down to figure out why. So just as I kind of outlined how you drill down into missing the forecast on a sales number, we would now need to create a hierarchy of the metrics that go together to create, you know, what what happened to our profitability? Well, that's, you know, it's both top line gross margin, expenses. Um uh, uh, if we look at our growth rate, well, that's really funnel metrics. You know, were we successful at adding the number of new leads into the top of our funnel and converting that funnel at the same rate at which we'd hoped to? Uh, and then you, when you start looking at that, you start asking questions, well, did our sales force perform? Did we have enough salespeople? Did they, did they all achieve quota as, as appropriate? Uh, so, to, uh, hopefully, that concept of a hierarchy comes out there because so, I think people can get confused with metrics uh, by diving too low too quickly and not realizing, well, why are we tracking this? You know, what's what what's the purpose of this? And I think the purpose of that is to recognize it's these four top-level metrics. And what we're trying to do is build a way of understanding the components that drive our business and use those as great techniques for managing the business, for understanding when things are going uh, going to go wrong, uh, anticipating it before they go wrong and being able to fix it before they go wrong, etc. So So I, I, I'm sorry that I missed, I didn't answer your question directly, but I didn't want to dive straight to like a pinpoint metric without really giving that framework there because that, I think, allows you to understand that when you when you do jump to a pinpoint metric it is you know as, as a result of being able to support one of those four very high level metrics that you're trying to achieve in the business.
0: Absolutely love that answer. But if we go back to the core cool question of ACVs and what we can do to fundamentally increase them. What do we think that we can do in terms of changing or altering pricing models to really increase that ACV? So
2: the top piece of advice I would give to SaaS entrepreneurs once they've gotten product market fit and are well on their way to understanding the sales and marketing process is they should turn their attention to figuring out how to get negative churn, you know, how to find a way to upsell and cross-sell into their installed base. So, even though they lose some customers, that ultimately they're still going to end up with more revenue from the cohort that began uh, when they, you know, they signed up that group of customers uh, a year later than they started with at the beginning.
0: What does that do to the pricing
2: axes? Excellent question. know, yeah, well spotted, Harry, because that, that is, uh, you know, the first question I get from uh, many startups is, well, wait a second, we've only got one pr- Product and it, and it 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 all costs two thousand dollars. So how are we going to get more money out of those customers? If and this was actually the exact story at HubSpot. You know, it took us a while to educate ourselves about this. We had a, a single product that sold at five hundred dollars a month, and there was nothing to upsell there. Um, so we couldn't go back to the install base and get more money out of them. So the first thing you realize with this is, well, how do we sell something more to them? The answer is, there's two things you could do. You you can take your current product and have variable pricing axes so that. That even though they're using the same product, you're not selling them something different, you're going to get more money from them as they use it more. And so a good SaaS product will have at least one variable pricing axis and possibly more. So a common one you'll hear is how many seats of people are using this. But in many cases, that's not a good metric because you don't actually add more users, but you can be still be delivering more value. So in HubSpot's case, they chose to pick the number of leads that are in the database as a good metric. Method- of determining how much value the customer is getting out of the system. So, as you add more leads, you pay more money to them. You know, you'll know you find many different things. Dropbox, for example, uses the amount of storage that you're using as a metric for uh, increasing how much you pay them. And I'm sure all of you are familiar with different pricing schemes out there. But the, the important factor there is to look at your pricing scheme and ask if you've got variable pricing axes. Don't worry about doing this if you're a very, very early stage company, because actually, in truth, in the really early stage, you just want to keep things simple and sign up customers Customers. This is kind of a, a slightly it's like secondary thing you start to work on as you get a more mature and successful SaaS company. The second thing you could obviously do is you could add more products, so uh, you can have a pro version and you could have a enterprise version and you could charge more money for those. So you have different feature breakouts. Those are different versions of the, your primary product, uh, and then you could have some some add-on products which are really you know cross-sells to a different thing. You're selling them a reporting module. I think ultimately when when you look at mature SaaS businesses, even though the customers may not love this. Mature SaaS businesses probably have to break their products down into lots of different modules and price that way. And the reason for this is pretty simple. You're going to find that some customers are very comfortable and happy to pay you two million a year for your product, and yet some other customers will only be willing to pay you ten thousand dollars a year. So how on earth do you come up with pricing that lets you sell to both of those without accidentally finding that you, instead of getting the two million dollars from the high-end Customer, you're only getting twenty thousand from them because you didn't come up with a good pricing scheme which allows you to capture their willingness to pay you that high pricing differential there. And I think the way to do that is to end up with um, you know segmenting of the product into different elements that you know. So you you recognise that the twenty thousand dollar a year customer really doesn't need certain features, so you take them out. But you know that the two million a year customer, it's really important to them to have you know global security features or things like that, and you put those into the, the version that they, they want to purchase.
0: Okay, so now we have this enterprise-grade version of the product. Should we hire specific enterprise salespeople to really sell just this version of the product? To discuss this, we'll chat to Jason Lemkin at Sasta.
1: And what's the number one mistake we make besides being anxious? We set the wrong expectations for sales reps before we have that great VP. If you're going to early hire a sales rep and just have her or him work on big deals, are you going to give her two quarters before she closes anything? <laughs> it's- pretty stressful. This will be even stressful when you're at $20 million or $50 million in AR but at least you'll be able to blend it against all your other reps and all your other channels to acquire customers. So my biggest suggestion in the early days is if you're going to hire an AE in the early days just to do bigger deals, don't let that be all she does or you'll be anxious for quarter after quarter as you're paying her salary and her OT will probably be the highest in the company and you'll be stressed out when in the first two quarters she closes nothing. Instead, Splitter leads 50-50 between big and large and later let her just do all the large ones. That'll make your life better.
0: If we dig a little deeper though now from the reps to the leads that they work on and really optimizing them for value extraction, so to speak, Jason Lemkin will now walk us through how we should think about kind of revenue optimization on a lead basis.
1: There's a metric we talked about a lot in the very early days of SaaS revenue per lead that I've really never seen anyone talk about since. But I actually think this is one of the best tools for you as a CEO or founder for growing faster from say sales rep three through number 20. And it, and it's knowing revenue per lead. And what we all get really good at is understanding how much revenue a sales rep is generating. We know exactly how much Linda or Bob or Joe booked last month. But how did they get it done? How much revenue do they generate per lead? And uh, for your first two reps, you'll know. Uh, typically, if you have two reps, you'll split the leads in half. Bob will get half and Linda will get the other. And you don't need to know the revenue per lead. But it's hard to keep track from reps three through 20. And here's the key. Once you can start granularly knowing how many and which leads, leads to send to which rep, you'll learn so much more. On my first team, I learned that some reps couldn't possibly process more than 50 leads per month because as soon as I gave them 51, they didn't generate any more revenue. But some of our top performers could handle 100 or even 150 leads per month because they were so efficient. Uh, In other cases, um, there were follow-up time issues. Some reps were great at following up in 60 seconds. Some took hours. And you need to know how many leads of which type to route to each rep. And it's work. But if you can do this, typically you You can get about 20% more revenue out of however many sales qualified leads or just leads in general as you would otherwise if you're always routing the right lead to the rep that can process them the most. Uh, So try to figure that out after about 20 reps after as many as you can fit on one sheet, uh, one PowerPoint slide, it's too many and you just have to judge reps uh, and the whole process from lead to close based on how much revenue each human generates but from 3 to 20 get each lead into the hand of the right rep for that lead and you will grow much much faster
0: so i hear you we're going quite deep into the granularity on enterprise pricing and so the other side of the equation is well do i need to design for enterprise can i not just start at smb and stay there or can i start at smb and scale up i'm delighted to be joined by jason vanderboom at active campaign to discuss that now
3: pushing to go enterprise early on sort of bothers me
0: for some businesses that works really well but for a couple of reasons why i like
3: smbs and why i think it's a good entry point and to even stay there would be to easier to start with an idea, a higher volume of points of feedback, and possibly most importantly, you can design for what you're looking to actually do and achieve. Meaning you're not designing for a known need within an enterprise. That'll hardly revolutionize like a market or something like that. Typically, that's just solving for a known need. Um, So if you have an idea that's a little bit beyond that, starting with the SMB will allow you to do that because you don't have a single company that's going to just push you into a direction of their own choosing. The other thing I'd say is everyone always says, like don't design for an outcome like an acquisition, IPO, etc. I say don't design for enterprise. Meaning, go SMB first, allow mid-market enterprise to buy from you and it gives you a unique advantage in which you can sort of apply pressure to the enterprise space in a way that the space hasn't seen or hasn't requested. So if you start with enterprise first, you're hardly going to like shift the way of thinking there. You're just going to create something that's known and likely something that's similar
0: to something in the space. No, I couldn't agree with you more That And two Kind of concerns or, or questions that come to my mind really lie around and the ACVs that are inherent within SMB. I have to admit I've been prone to it myself along with other VCs that kind of immediately say to founders, "Ugh, with those ACVs, it's going to take 30,000 customers to scale to X number of revenue." How do you respond to the common VC statement of "Ugh, such small ACVs, the difficulty with the go-to-market"? Yeah. How do you yeah. respond to that? Well, bluntly, I'd probably just say, "Who
3: cares?" But that's just uh, I've seen the power. of of that company. And, and also, like, if you're providing that much value and whatnot, mid-market enterprise will start buying from you. That's always the situation I'd want to be in first before trying to sell to them. Meaning that they're seeing enough value to come down and buy and you're not forcing something on them. Even early on, like when it was just myself and I was in art school and whatnot, I had businesses like IBM, Pixar, Texas Instruments all, all buying licenses. Like I was not going after the enterprise and half the time you start within an enterprise in a department or in some small organization within it, right? It's this not obsessing about that. They will come to you. And we've seen this with so many other companies that have done SMB first. I think it's mostly this push from enterprise is just like it's every playbook, it's every thought. It always goes down to that, like, ACVs are terrible. Yeah, on a blended basis, your ACV may
0: be low, but you will start finding ways to get some larger ACVs in there as well. It's fascinating to hear that perspective from Jason, because one of the conversations I had at SAS to Paris was where one founder said it's so much easier to actually start an enterprise where you you build out fully the product in all its greatness, and then you can actually cater to all segments of the market and move down to SMB. I want to talk to Fred Shilmover at Insight Square to discuss whether that's true and whether he agrees with that.
4: No, I I, I fundamentally I I think the exact opposite. I don't agree with that. So the space that we're in, business intelligence, it's been around for 35 years and largely unchanged. It's essentially a better version of Microsoft Excel. So BI is typically you know more rows of data, relational data, different sources, you know, faster queries. But fundamentally, it hasn't changed. And part of the reason is it's been sold to enterprises, and it's a little bit of technology, essentially a data warehouse with a ton of professional services wrapped around that. And we thought, okay, wait, if we could reinvent business intelligence for the cloud, how would we do it? And we would absolutely not do it that way. So starting at SMB actually worked better. So my co-founder is our head of product, and he likes to say a product manager's job is losing the war to complexity as slowly as possible. And I think if you start with enterprise and you're essentially an outsourced development shop for, you know, an IBM or a GE, you're never going to build a repeatable, scalable product. I think Clay Christensen, like his whole theory of disrupt. He wrote the book Innovators Dilemma. is based on this idea that if you start at the small end of the market with a simple product, over time you develop the performance. And when we started, I think the incumbents looked at us and said, "Oh, Inside Squared is just a you know a toy app. It's you know cute sales visuals." And over time, we built a ton of power into the product, and all of a sudden, we started getting pulled into enterprise deals. But by keeping our roots and a big part of our customer base in SMB and sort of squarely in mid market, it forced us to have discipline where we actually have, we do have a professional services team, but it's a relatively small portion of our revenue because the product has to be simple and flexible enough for mid-sized companies to use. And one of the reasons that we're pulled into enterprise, so like, you know, we work with large publicly traded companies that have a BI team and have millions of dollars of business intelligence and the line of business sales, sales operations, they aren't getting what they need from that. It's too complicated. Every time they want to ask it a question, they have to go through an analyst because there's this sort of of mathematical thing you can't escape. If you say whatever data you have, whatever question you have, we have a tool that can answer that. That's fundamentally a very complex problem set that you're trying to solve for. One of the things we did early on is actually picked a major. Unlike any other of our competitors, we said our major is going to be revenue. Our major is going to be sales. And I, I think we picked the right one. If I think about what keeps me up at night, it's not will our rent or you know, T&E change, because I think our accountants are pretty good at forecasting that. It's how how much are we going to book in Q4? And you know it's 15 days or 12 days until the end of Q4. And that's there's still a ton of variability. So I think we picked the right spot to sort of drive value in an organization. And by delivering something that's simple enough for a small and mid-sized company to use to the enterprise, that's how we differentiate against the rest of the market. I think it's really hard to move with a very complex, heavy, professionally services-driven product down market. I think it's much easier for us to add flexibility to our product. And that's something we did. So after many years of being in business, we launched a product sort of right right about a year ago that was there to extend the flexibility of what Insight Squared can do. The product is called Slate. And in Slate, you can sort of extend our use cases or bring in additional data. But I'm glad we did that years after we started the product versus at the beginning.
0: Now, I want to finish today with one of the godfathers of SaaS in the form of Dave Kellogg. And he's discussing today how we should calculate ACV and what it really means to be an ARR first company.
5: Uh, Just last night, I met with a very smart entrepreneur, very cool company. um, He wanted to show me his financials. And the first line was all about ACV that was mixing new ACV, upsell ACV, and renewals ACV. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Um, Another time, people, they they show me uh, gap revenue. I'm like, you're a SaaS company. Why is your first slide gap revenue? So if everybody thinks they want to be ARR first, but but you only know you are if based on the answers to these three questions. One, if you ask somebody how big a deal is, do they answer an ARR? If they in any other unit, your company's not ARR first. If I ask what the forecast for the quarter is, if you don't answer in ARR, right, it's about what I don't say. If I just say, what's the forecast? Do you answer in bookings? What do you answer in? Um, if you answer in ARR, that's correct, right, then you're ARR first. What's the first line of the first slide of your investor deck or board deck? And if it isn't ARR, then you're not ARR first. So lots of people think they do this. It's actually a dangerous form of denial in my mind. But if you want to be ARR first, make this the first slide of your board deck of your investor deck. And it's not only my opinion. I, had, uh, I met a couple years back with Doug Leone, top guy at Sequoia. I showed him some financials in this format. And he goes, every SaaS company should present their financials in this format. And what this shows you is what I call a leaky bucket analysis, because a SaaS company is a leaky bucket full of ARR. Every quarter, sales pours more water in the bucket. Every quarter, customer success tries to keep water from leaking out of the bucket. Therefore, you can say we started a period with 100 units of ARR. We added 50 Units we churned away ten, therefore we ended with 140 units. And I can tell you that the value of your SaaS company is determined by the water level in the bucket and by how fast that's growing. When you do this analysis, it's very important. Like you can see things like people who are say they they sell two million in new ARR but churn one so five. It's it's a big bucket and they're having trouble keeping it full. Well, that company's not worth very much, right? Because it's not growing the water level in the bucket. It's got a big bucket, but it's not growing. So that's why we have the three growth rates down below: new ARR growth and. ARR growth, which really is the single most important thing for valuing your company, um, and net new ARR growth. How much incremental did you do to the bucket? Everybody agrees we should be ARR first. The question is, are you? If your default unit isn't ARR, and if you don't show your financials with an immediate focus on the ARR bucket and what's happening to it, I'm going to argue you're not ARR first. Uh, And Lord knows, please don't show up with a gap P&L, right? (laughs) These things (laughs) will hurt you when you try to raise money, right? Because a VC wants to know that you get ARR and you are an ARR first person quite a good question to
0: end on there. Are you an ARR-first company? And if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes at SASTY, you can on Instagram at stebbings 1996 with two Bs. I would love to see you there. But before we leave you today, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Well, Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. Join them and learn more about the true value of social at sproutsocial.com. And speaking about the power and importance of connection, I want to talk about Sapling, the new people operations platform taking the community by storm. Hundreds of companies, including Envision, Cruise, Kayak, and DigitalOcean, are raving about Sapling and its ability to streamline HR, create a red carpet employee experience, and empower people operations teams with the connectivity, data, and insights to improve employee happiness, productivity, and turnover. And best yet, listeners of Sasta Podcast get three months of sapling free, whilst this offer lasts. So if you're tired of wasting time managing HR in spreadsheets and repetitive manual workflows, or if you're just wishing you had one system to manage your global workforce, head on over to saplinghr.com slash to sign up and see why leading teams are making the switch. That's saplinghr.com forward slash and start empowering your talent to reach their potential through the power of automation, connectivity, and talent insights powered through Sapling today. And last but not least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Tyler Amy, co-founder and CEO of Fusebill. Fusebill is the leading recurring billing, payments, and subscription management platform. Fusebill ignites growth in businesses worldwide with a flexible subscription commerce engine. Absolutely love that, Tyler, and getting help from peers means help finding success. And you can also find success with the combination of WePay and Chase which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit wepay.com forward slash Harry. That's wepay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I cannot thank you enough for tuning in. Really, it's been such a pleasure, and I cannot wait to bring you another fantastic episode next week.